Yo, what up? How's it going? Yeah? Got my, my bottle up here. I'm on the bottle, and this is what the Lord commands that you do today, and that was the sermon. Have a nice, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Ah. You got yours with you? Yeah, all right, whatever. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Take your Bibles and turn over to Acts 15. I've been saying that for weeks, right? It's like, when's he going to get done with this chapter? Ah, man, I want to go into 16. (sighs) Nobody's actually thinking that. (laughs) I have been. Uh, And hopefully we will cross over into 16 today. We have, yeah, Acts chapter 15, I'll give you the verse in a minute. We have reached another turning point moment in the book of Acts. We've noticed those, right, as we've been kind of teaching through it and following along. There's these sort of turning points where, you know, kind of big things happen. The gospel goes out to the Gentiles and, you know, the persecution of the church and things like that. And and so there's been all these sort of turning point moments in the history of the church, according to the book of Acts. And, And we've reached... Another one of those turning points in the narrative, in the historical narrative, the second missionary church planting journey of Paul is now on the horizon, right around the corner, if you will, right over the hill. So that's where we're at. But before Paul engaged in his second missionary journey, there were other things that had to be done. There were other responsibilities and things that had to to be taken care of. And so we're kind of right on the precipice, if you will, of the second journey beginning, which really begins in 16.6. So we've got to cover some ground in between, see what happened in between before we get into it. But we're really at one of those turning point moments where we're about to engage in some pretty cool study of the second journey. Uh, One of the, uh, for instances of this transitional sort of thing or being on the precipice of this journey is the ecumenical letter uh, or letter to the Gentiles. It had been addressed to the Gentiles, if you remember back in the middle of 15, it had been addressed to the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, which means that the council wanted that particular letter delivered and read to the Gentile churches in those areas, the Jerusalem representatives, if you will, Judas and Silas had, in our story, had already, you know, gone back to Jerusalem. Uh, And, and, you know, in a way, these guys had been sent to go out with Paul and Barnabas to all these churches, and it was kind of a weird thing that happened. So before this journey, you have, like, the letter that needs to be distributed. It's only been distributed amongst one church, In Syrian Antioch, you had these guys that were sent up for the purpose of taking the letter out there, but they returned to Jerusalem. And that's sort of our inter-between-the-journeys period, and that's kind of where we're at now. That's what we're looking at. Um, I was thinking that, okay, if we were to jump into the second journey immediately, then, then what would happen with taking that letter and distributing it through throughout all of those churches. And so that's kind of, kind of the focus. That's kind of the, the in-between thing that we're going to be looking at. Somebody's got to take this letter out and distribute it. And you got Silas and Judas that have gone back to Jerusalem. So now you have Paul and Barnabas that are left in Syrian Antioch. And, and somebody's got to take this letter out. 
before the second journey begins, this has to be done. And, and that really is kind of the crux of chapter 15, verse 36 to 16.5. And that will be our area of study today. So we got to look at that little period, what took place there before the second journey uh, actually happens. And uh, there's sort of, a, according to the text, a sense of expediency here. Uh, to get this letter out and to get the letter to the other churches that the uh, apostles and elders wanted it to go to, why? Why would you think this needs to be done in an expedited way? Well, you remember the Judaizers that came to Syrian Antioch with this lie about the gospel. They're going out and hitting all these churches. They're going out and spreading these lies about circumcision and the necessity of it to these churches that are scattered throughout these, this region. And, uh, and so... Their error has to be met by the letter. The letter needs to go into these churches before they reach these churches or as they're doing it so that the letter can confirm the actual gospel truth, which is that circumcision is not required. And so, you know, we have this kind of in-between the first journey and second journey period, but it's highly important. It's monumentally important because we have this letter that was written to the Gentiles that needs to go out and go to these different churches and the question becomes who, who did the that task fall upon I mean if you have two representatives from Jerusalem Judas and Silas who have turned around and gone back to Jerusalem when in fact it's partially their responsibility who's going to take up the responsibility and do it who's going to take this letter out and go to these churches and so just some interesting things as we begin to study we will actually see who took up the responsibility and carried it through as I said, our study section this morning will be 1536 to 16.5. I'd like to read that entire section and then pray and, and then get to work. <clears throat> 1536 to 16.5. Are you there? Okay, good. It says, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas uh, wanted, to take that, wanted to take with them John called Mark, John Mark or Mark, what have you. But he wanted to take this guy, John Mark, with him. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that, uh, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And then we cross over into 16. Paul came also to Derbe and then to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. <laughs> I read that. It's like, is that a bad thing? But his father was Greek, by the way. And it says, he was well spoken of by the brother, speaking of Timothy, at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him Ow. And because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. 
as they went on their way through the cities and delivered to them from observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. We got all kinds of weird stuff going on in here. This in-between period, some really fascinating, and we're talking about someone who got circumcised, okay? That's kind of an interesting thing. We're talking about an argument that broke out between two of the greatest missionaries of all time, which led to the band being broken up, and then a new band being started over here, and a new band, just a, some crazy, crazy stuff going on here. And so I think it'd be fit for us to pray before we begin to sort of break these passages down to find out the, the real reality of what's going on here and, and why these things took place and their importance and how they impact us. Amen? Father, open our hearts and minds to you this morning. Um, you know, I know myself, Lord, and I'm a very dull-minded, sort of fleshy sort of person who, who really just wants to, to revel and exult in myself and selfish in all of these things. That's really the human condition. And, and when it comes to studying your word, it's difficult. When it comes to listening, it can be very challenging because of our flesh. And, and I think that everyone here can resonate with what I'm saying. And so, Lord, we pray that you would put away with all distractions, Lord, that you would bind up our flesh for a moment, that you would bind up our concerns as we approach the throne of grace and want to hear directly from you. And so be with us now, Lord Jesus. Teach us about providence, teach us about difficulty in these things. May our hope be firmly secured in you as we see how you work in and through all things to achieve your will, which is what is absolutely best for us and for those who are in you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would illuminate our minds, open our hearts and minds to you, soften our hearts, and teach us today, Lord Jesus. This is your message to us, not Pastor Phil's. Uh, this isn't the fruits of my labor. Uh, this is you and your sermon, and you are preaching here today. And so make your truth known to us, and may we obey it, live it out. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to go back to 36. i got to quench my palate one more time because I've still got that stupid cold. Three weeks, this thing I've had. Anyone else have it that long? It just does not go away. It just keeps on lingering, you know? Pretty, uh, pretty difficult. <clears throat> All right, 36, 1536. We got that transitional period. Let's look at what happened in between that second journey beginning. And it says, after and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, looks over at his compadre, his missionary partner. They're at the church at Syrian Antioch. He looks over at him and he says, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. I love that. We want to check in on. Our section begins with Paul, the Apostle Paul, inviting Barnabas to depart, to leave the church at Syrian Antioch, to go with Paul and to go visit all the churches they planted in Cyprus, Galatia, and Pamphylia during the first journey, which has basically ended by now. It's like, hey, man, we went and planted all those churches, you know, a few months ago. Let's go back and check on them. Let's go check on the believers. Let's pray that they still believe. Let's, let's, let's hope that the Judaizers haven't made their way and had some inroads into these churches. Let's go see how the brothers are doing in those areas where we planted 
churches. I, I love how it's worded there and see how they are. Isn't that a term that we would use today? You need to call Betty Sue to see how she's doing. Just to see how she is. They wanted to see how they are. He wanted to make sure that they were in the faith. He wanted to make sure that they were growing. He wanted to make sure that they were spreading the gospel, that they were obedient to the Great Commission. And I, I definitely think that the component of the Judaizers is there. He wanted to, Paul wanted to, to see if they had experienced, these churches had experienced any run-ins with these guys, with these heretics, with these false teachers. Look at 30. Seven. And some of this stuff's going to be moving real quick because I would have to really try to extrapolate crazy things that really aren't there. This is just movement. This is conversation stuff. And so some of this stuff's going to be moving fairly quickly. Uh, look at 37. What was Barnabas' response to Paul? Paul says, hey, I think we should go back and visit all those churches. It'd be a good idea to check in on these brothers. These are the people that, you know, man, they responded to the gospel. We planted these churches. What was Barnabas' response? 37, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. This was how Barnabas responded. I, I want to take John called Mark with us. Barnabas basically brought up his nephew, John Mark. That's who he was. He was Barnabas' nephew, at least is what it seems to imply in the New Testament as the cousin and nephew phrases are used as, you know, interchangeably between John Mark and Barnabas. And so it's like, hey, I want to take my, my nephew with us. I want to take John Mark. John Mark had accompanied the two of these guys in their first missionary journey. But he left right after they sailed from Cyprus to Pamphylia. You know, John Mark was present during the first phase of their mission journey in Cyprus. He traveled throughout Cyprus and these places there. And, and, uh, but when they landed, when they left Cyprus and went over to Pamphylia, the coast up there, the northern coast, if you will, north of Cyprus, John Mark just bounced. He was like, I'm out. He left. He took off. And we were never given a reason for his departure. The, Luke, the historian, the author of this book, never wrote why. He just said he took off. He left. And return to Jerusalem, that's about the, as much detail as we have. I gave you some potential reasons for why as I was studying and looked at different commentaries and what other men had said. And could have been because of fear. You know, John Mark might have been a younger man and might have just had fear. I mean, you're going out into these Gentile, you're a Jewish guy basically, and you go out into these Gentile territories. Jews weren't typically in Gentile territories ever. And so, you know, it could have been, whoa, they do crazy things over there. They got big temples for false gods and stuff, and I'm not really down with that. So it could have been fear. Uh, you know, it could have been homesickness. Somebody said that, you know, mama, I want mommy. You know, he might have been a little homesick. Could have been a difference in theology. He might not have thought the gospel really was for the Gentiles. This is something the Jews wrestled with at this time. You know, I, I'm not sure. I think Gentiles, you know, God might have a global plan, but would it really include Gentiles? Aren't there Jews all over the world? You know, so they had this sort of theological thing that might have been playing out there. Uh, and it could have even been because he was upset that Paul assumed and took the leadership position between the two. You know, you've got, you've got Uncle Barney 
and, and you love him, that's flesh and blood. You've known him your whole life, and, 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 and he's a godly man, and he's got wisdom, and he's a compassionate man, and he's an encouraging man. And, and you might feel like, man, my, my uncle, dude, he, he should be leading this thing, not this dude that killed Christians not too long ago. So it, there could have been that sort of, you know, family bias going on there. Uh, he might have wanted his, his uncle, Uncle Barney, instead of the great apostle Paul. Who knows? In any case, he left. And, but yet in our text, we see Barnabas desiring to reinstate him, right? Yeah, I know he bounced, but, you know, I, I think we should, I think it's time. I think he's ready. I think we should get John Mark. I think we should, you know, send him a telegraph, you know, or whatever. I don't know how the heck, you know, send a letter or whatever. Let's call for him. Let's, let's get him back in the mix. He wanted to take his nephew. Now look at 38 to 39a. This is where it gets exciting. Reminds me of all the family excitement I've experienced in my life. You get, you get something going on in there and there's a disagreement. You know, it's just, all right, got to love family. You, you know, some of you know. I mean, this poor guy right here puts together a family reunion with over 100 people on it. You know, he's, he's got to walk around with a big stick. Keep him tame, you know. Uh, so he suggests Barnabas. I want to take my nephew. And then it says in 38, but Paul thought best. <laughs> well, my opinion. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia had not, and had not gone with them to the work. And what did this result in? I don't think that's a good idea. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Uh, we would call this a, an explosion. This was, uh, it just blew up. Paul felt, he thought that it would be best not to bring John Mark along. He thought it was a bad idea because he saw his prior actions, when he left, when they landed at Pamphylia, he saw this as a desertion. He saw this as a, as a, or as a negation of John Mark's responsibility, which was the Great Commission to spread the gospel. Uh, and so that kind of brings a sense in of, of what was going on there. I mean, you know, Paul adamantly said no. And Paul's refusal led to a sharp disagreement between himself and Barnabas. Sharp in the Greek is, it really means heated and continuous. Like this got ugly. This got ugly. This was a serious, serious disagreement where you have one saying, well, I think we should bring him. We have the other one saying, are you out of your mind? You know, no, I don't think it's a good idea. It got heated. That's what the Greek tense gives. It gives a a very heated, sort of adamant, sort of loud, hot-headed sort of thing happening here. A sharp disagreement. It really does mean heated and continuous. They, they kept going back and forth. I think we should bring him? No way. I think we should bring him? No way. Both men became hot-headed and neither would relent. And this led to total separation, total relational breakdown. Boom! Explosion. 
And this was a bit of a sad moment, I think. At least in my mind, Paul and Barnabas had been together for years. They traveled together, ministered together, suffered together, triumphed together. And, you know, you go and you look for resources and you want to find out, you know, the first thing you think of is who's right and who's wrong here? What's going on? Which guy's the right guy? Which guy's the wrong guy? You know, or you want to figure out what's going on. You start reading commentaries and all that. And the guys are giving you all kinds of input. And, and some even argue that, that Paul was wrong for disagreeing with Barnabas. That he was out of line. They say he was unloving. They say that he was ungracious. They say that he was unmerciful. You won't restate him, reinstate him. What kind of mercy is that? The guy, the guy's sorry or whatever. But let's consider a few things before we side with those who hold that position. Let's not just go, that's ugly, Paul. You're being ugly. You ever tell your kid that? That's ugly. Let's consider a few things. Number one. Luke characterized Paul's behavior here in this text, in our passage, in a positive manner. You look at the original Greek, there's nothing here that would show any fault with Paul. He's not being represented here in this translation in a negative fashion. It's not positive, it's not negative. It's Sweden, it's Switzerland, it's neutral. There's nothing here. Now, let me tell you, the Greek language is pretty amazing, and, 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 and Colby will attest to this, Paul, anyone else who's somewhat familiar with it, that you, you would be able to pick up on the tenses of the verbs and things here and, and know that, whoa, somebody's out of line here through even this simple explanation. But there's nothing here in the text that would characterize Paul's behavior in a negative way. In fact, I think it's more of a positive thing. Number two, Paul was the primary leader, and he is the one who had apostolic authority. Okay, if you go back and look through the New Testament and all that, you look at the book of Acts, you look all over, there's at least one or two instances where Paul and Barnabas together are um, thought of or expressed as apostles, but the bottom line is, according to the New Testament, Barnabas is not an apostle, never was, never will be. Paul is an apostle. There's a difference in rank. There's a difference in position. There's a difference in authority. Okay? And so, what does that mean? You've got a guy who is, he's the man. If he makes a call, he made the call. He's the one that has Jerusalem-backed authority. Not that Barnabas is really any less of a man or anything, but he's not an apostle. He's a pastor. He's an elder. He was definitely a leader. And now, now, if you go back and look at church history and you look at the Catholic tradition and all that, Barnabas is a saint, he's an apostle and all these things, but according to the original language, there's really nothing in the New Testament that would declare him as such. But Paul, no doubt, is. There's not a doubt. There's not, we don't even have to go there. So there's nothing in the text that characterizes Paul in a negative way. Plus, he was the primary leader. And then number three, we must consider Paul's attitude and heart and disposition. Paul would not. He was the type of Christian 
the type of man, the type of leader, the type of apostle that simply would not allow anyone or anything distract him from, for, from fulfilling his duty to Christ. Nothing. He would allow nothing to do that. He read about, he read his prison letters, you know. He goes to prison. They try to stop him. That way, what does he do? Philippian jailer gets saved. The gospel's still advancing, even in a stinky, dank jail cell. This man would allow nothing to interfere or to stop him from fulfilling his duty to Christ, from advancing the gospel. And guess what John Mark was? A hindrance to that. Does that mean that Paul doesn't love John Mark? No. Does it mean because there was a sharp disagreement that he doesn't love Barnabas? No. But sometimes in ministry you have to make critical decisions that involve people that just have a way of hindering. And you disciple them through that and you train them and you teach them and you do what you can. But at the end of the day, it's about advancing the gospel. So we have nothing in the text that characterizes him in a negative way. He was the apostle, the only one in the group there. And the very heart of Paul was to not allow anything or anyone to obstruct. He even called out people who tried to mess with him. Alexander the coppersmith, stay away from that jabroni, he tried to jack me up. What did he do with Alexander the coppersmith when he was met by that resistance? Went right around him like in the passing lane on 99. Oh, okay. That's what he did. That was the type of guy he was. If you take those three, and are there more examples? Yeah, but if you take those three things into consideration, not saying, it's not a matter of who's right and wrong. I think both men are right in a way. But one of them has the ability to not only express his concern, but to make a judgment call. And it needs to stand. And guess what that means? It means the other person has an issue, needs to submit. Not get blown out over your family member. I know I'm pushing for that Paul is right thing because I just really like him a lot. <laughs> I am so terrible. I'm, I'm just like, it's like you love Paul. Just tell everyone. You don't like Barnabas. I think Barnabas is amazing. But in this case, I think Paul was clearly right. Now, once they were separated, you know, this happened. What took place next? Look at 39b to 40. Okay, we have this disagreement. We have the suggestion. We have, first of all, we have, hey, I think we should go back to all those churches. Then you have the suggestion. Then you have the disagreement. Then you have the explosion. And look at what happened once they separated. 39b to 40. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. They're going back to one of those places where they planted churches. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Now, as ugly as the argument and separation might have been, in our minds, in our hearts, God did something really amazing through it. In fact, this was God's plan all along. 
If you believe God is a sovereign God who is over all things and who ordains all things, then as ugly as this thing is, you must be thinking in your mind, okay, God is sovereign. He's over all things. He ordained all things. All things move and happen because of him, because he really is that amazing and that awesome. Then guess what? There's got to be a purpose behind this explosion. And what did God do through it? He formed two teams. Barnabas with Mark and Paul with Silas. Barnabas took Mark and headed for his homeland. And that's interesting. That's where Barnabas was from. He was from Cyprus. He took Mark and headed for his homeland. He went to Cyprus. But we know they planted churches there. Barnabas and Mark had ministered together in Cyprus during that first journey. Cyprus was a great place for them to go and visit churches and encourage the believers that had been formed there through the power of the gospel, the Holy Spirit. It was a great place to go preach the gospel. It was a great place maybe even to go and plant more churches. Now, here's what's really fascinating about this text. And you're going to be thinking, oh, he's pushing again for Paul being right. No. I just find it fascinating that Barnabas is not mentioned again in the book of Acts. From there on, gone. We hear nothing. We see nothing. We have no, I hear no evil, I see no We don't even know what he did. I know nothing, Mr. Schultz. I know nothing. We, there's nothing in this narrative. We don't hear about his journey. We don't, we don't know what he did in Cyprus. We don't know if he went and put his feet up and had a, you know, a, a cool little daiquiri, you know, with a little umbrella on it. We, we, I, know, I think he went and did the work of the gospel, but we don't, there's nothing. He, his name disappears from the historical narrative. Isn't that interesting? I don't think it means that he's bad. He's wrong. It just doesn't appear again. It's almost as if he fell right off the map. Luke does not mention any details about his ministry with John Mark. Nothing. His rapid drop-off, immediate is what it is in the text. It's the last time we see his name in the, in the whole narrative. An absence, you know, this drop-off and his absence through the rest of the historical narrative seems to imply that he went home to Cyprus and never returned to the ministry. You would almost think that, right? Like, he's just gone. We don't hear anything more from him. So, you know what? This disagreement was so bad, he took his nephew, packed his bags, and got the heck out of there and just said, you know, like a lot of people do today, the church stinks. It burned me. I'm out. I'm gone. I'm going back to Cyprus. It's daiquiri mode. I earned it. We would almost think that. Is it true? Did he leave the ministry after this blowout with Paul? No. In 1 Corinthians 9, 6, Paul mentioned Barnabas as bivocational. To be bivocational is to work for the church, but draw income or some of your income from an outside job. Paul was bivocational. Isn't that amazing? The greatest Christian missionary and apostle of all time had a job while he was serving the church, and that's how he got paid. He didn't draw a dime, not one red cent from the church. I think that's amazing. You have countless men in the ministry that, i got to get paid. There's nothing wrong with getting paid. Paul argued that a, the worker is worth his wage, but he didn't take a dime. He was bivocational. He worked a job making tents. I'm bivocational. I work for RHC. 
and I sell electronics. I hate the selling of electronics, but it's something I do. It does keep me in tune with the world. I work with a bunch of guys who don't know Jesus, and so in a lot of ways it keeps me sensitive to you because that's where you work. And so it's kind of a good thing, but I'm bivocational. I do the church and that. Barnabas, too, was bivocational, which does what? We're talking 1 Corinthians. We're talking later. Being that he's mentioned as bivocational means that, guess what? He was still working and active in the church. He didn't leave the ministry. He didn't leave the church. He didn't leave the ministry. He kept at it. If you look at 1 Corinthians 9, 6, you might even take notice of how Paul mentioned Barnabas' name there. He didn't describe him as his old church planning partner or traveling buddy. He didn't give any detail. Why? Because he assumes that the Corinthians know exactly who he's speaking of. Barnabas had probably gone to this church later on. We don't know, but apparently the Corinthian believers knew who he was. He just says Barnabas. Oh, are Barnabas and I the only ones who can't blah, blah, blah? He mentioned him so nonchalantly, so laid back, like as if they knew who he was speaking of. I think the fact that he was mentioned as bivocational and the fact that he was mentioned in such an unassuming, like, I, they know him kind of way that we can assume that Barnabas was active in the gospel. He went to Cyprus with John Mark. Yes, it was his homeland, but to visit and encourage those churches. Maybe to even plant more churches. Corinthian people knew who he was. Now, tradition is interesting. It's never... 100% reliable, it doesn't carry the kind of weight and authority that scripture carries, but it seems to confirm the fact that Barnabas stayed in it for the gospel. Um, tradition says that Barnabas was stoned to death in Cyprus by angry Jews who stormed the synagogue he was preaching at. He was preaching the gospel in a synagogue according to tradition, this long-held tradition, and some Jews that had come from Across the other side, uh, not from Cyprus, but from some of the other areas, Iconium probably, these places, they came to Cyprus, probably looking for Paul too, maybe unaware that he was up north, but they came into the synagogue, that's what tradition says, grabbed Barnabas, grabbed John Mark, brought them out, and stoned Barnabas to death right in front of Mark, and then let Mark go. an interesting contrast considering that Paul was the one stoned at Lystra. Barnabas did not get handled. And tradition says that it just was the reverse a little later on. Very interesting. In any case, our text says that Barnabas took John Mark with him to Cyprus. We're not sure exactly what they did, but I'm pretty sure they were about the gospel. I think it's safe to assume he visited the churches there and encouraged them and spread the gospel. Tradition may be accurate. And then it says Paul chose Silas. Silas was back in Jerusalem, though. Remember, we read a little while ago. And some of your translations, actually, I guess there's a missing verse there. I think it's 36 that's missing. Or is it 35 that's missing? There's a missing verse. It's the missing link. Whoa. Which one is it? Yeah, 34 is absent, right? There's no 34 in most translations. Some of them added in there that, you know, Silas thought it was a good idea to hang out. Therefore, he could just make this, you know, get picked and make this journey with Paul. But in my translation, it says that him and Judas basically went back. They were sent in peace and went back. And so when Paul said, I think I'd like to travel with Silas, I think it's fair and safe to assume that he had to send for him. Oh, 
he went back to Jerusalem. Well, we're going to have to wait about 10 more days for him to get here. And so he had to send for him, and, and he had to wait for him to get back. He had to wait for his arrival. And obviously, when Silas got the call, he accepted it. Oh, I'd love to go out and, and plant churches. I'd like to go out on this mission's journey. And he traveled back to Syria and Antioch. When he arrived, the church commended Paul and Silas together, you know, sort of commended them to the grace of the Lord and sent them off. We might say that the church blessed them, spent some time praying over them, may have anointed them or something of that effect, you know, commissioned them, you know. Another thing that's interesting to note there is that Barnabas and John Mark just left and didn't get that same type of commissioning. But Paul and Silas did. Interesting. Oh, you're rooting for Paul again. I'm just pointing out what's in the text or what isn't in the text. So that's an interesting thing there. Once they were commissioned and, and, and commended to the Lord, to the grace of the Lord, they were sent. Now look at the last verse of chapter 15, verse 41. And he, speaking of Paul, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. The first thing we notice in this great verse, this last verse, is that when Paul left Syria to Antioch, he did not take the same route he had taken on his first journey. When they went out on that first missions journey, Last time he sailed down the Arantes River and then took a boat across the Mediterranean and went to Cyprus. This time, however, he went through Syria and Cilicia. Now this is very significant here. This is why it's here. God wastes nothing. The details are important. And why is it significant? It is significant because it tells us that Paul and Silas took up the task of delivering and reading the ecumenical letter to the churches the council mentioned, right? This, this is for the churches in Antioch, Syria, Antioch. This is for the churches throughout Syria. This is for the churches throughout Cilicia. Those are the regions. When you go back and look at the letter in the middle of 15, that's who the letter's addressed to. And so we see Paul and Silas, they're going to go back and visit the churches they planted, but guess what? They didn't go the same route. They went down into these other churches in these regions and delivered the letter just as the apostles and elders, the ecumenical council, requested. Pretty awesome, right? They're the ones that took up the responsibility. They took up the task of delivering and reading the letter. These two guys became the messengers who traveled throughout Syria and Cilicia. Paul and Silas were the perfect team for the job, mind you. Silas had been originally sent to Syria and Antioch along with Judas for the purpose of representing the ecumenical council to the churches. But what happened? They returned to Jerusalem after visiting the church at Syria and Antioch. Why? I don't know. There's nothing in the text that would imply they were in the wrong. But they were supposed to go and accompany the other guys as they went out and spread the letter. They were the flesh and blood representatives from the Jerusalem church and council. It was vital that these guys were involved in this distribution and reading of the letter. They were supposed to be there to confirm it physically in the flesh. Read the letter, Paul. Yes, that's what the council says. We're the representatives from Jerusalem. Take heart. Be encouraged. Now, 
Paul and Barnabas, I think, however, were originally the ones that were supposed to do this job, but that disagreement changed their plans, didn't it? Barnabas took John Mark and went to Cyprus. Paul was left, I suppose, without a partner, and he called for Silas. Silas was supposed to go in the first place, if you will. It was necessary for him to go, as I said, because the council wanted a flesh and blood representative there accompanying the letter to encourage. That was the council's original plan. We look back at 1525. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Paul and Barnabas. Okay, Paul, the team was supposed to be Paul, Barnabas, Judas, and Silas. They were the messengers. Two went back, however. And then there was this explosion, separation. Silas was apparently supposed to go the first time. And here we read in the text, he's back in the mix. <laughs> the providence of God. Isn't that great? God used the disagreement between Barnabas and Paul to bring Silas back to Syrian Antioch so he could fulfill the original mission. Paul and Cyprus were the perfect, or Cyprus, Paul and Silas were the perfect team. You had the church planter, familiar with all these churches, had planted these churches, and you had the council's representative. In so many ways, we could easily say that Paul and Silas were a better team than Paul and Barnabas on their own. They, didn't, they weren't Jerusalem representatives. Paul would go into the churches in Syria and Cilicia and read the letter, and Silas, the council's representative, would stand by his side and amen the letter. What a perfect team. This was the council's plan, which was ultimately God's plan. Don't you love the providences of God? God ordains for things to happen, and they always happen some way or another. Men are constantly, I know, I'm a man, constantly interfering with the plans of God, but God fulfills his plans regardless. God worked through a sharp, dividing disagreement to fulfill his plans. It is totally true that God works in and through the good, the bad, and the ugly to fulfill his plans and purposes. We see this so clearly in the text. And then it says, Paul and Silas strengthened the churches. How? Okay, so there, here's the new team. One team broke up. They went one way. We got a new team, appropriate guy for the team, Silas with Paul, and they went around and they spread the letter and read the letter, and, and the fruit of that was what? The churches were strengthened. How so? Well, the same way the churches were strengthened back in Syrian Antioch. The letter was an affirmation to the Gentiles. You don't have to be circumcised. It's a good idea to avoid these things so you can keep the peace of the church. They were strengthened. They were encouraged just as before. They went out and went to all these churches and did this. Quite phenomenal. And the churches were strengthened. They were strengthened. Mission accomplished, right? To some degree, absolutely. The letter reached its objectives. There may have been a disagreement which probably threatened that in our minds, but it did not because it actually created a separation between two who weren't the absolute perfect team for the mission, thus bringing up one who was perfect for it because he was the flesh and blood representative. 
And now you have this perfect team. They've gone out. They're spreading the letter. They're reading the letter. Silas is affirming it in the flesh. And what is the result? These churches are strengthened. Bam. Isn't that cool? Now look at 16.1. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. They didn't just stop after that. They had other places to go. And it says, a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. <laughs> it's like, he had this great Jewish believing mom, but his dad was Greek. Kind of feels that way. After touring the churches and, and visiting the churches in Syrian, uh, Syria and Cilicia, Paul and Silas traveled west and entered Galatia. They visited Derby and Lystra. Paul and Barnabas had planted churches in these cities during the first missionary journey. Lystra had been the scene of some remarkable events, if you remember. It was there that Paul healed a lame man in the agora or shopping center of the town. In response, the astonished crowd proclaimed the two missionaries gods. You remember that? They called Barnabas Zeus. <laughs> Barnabas was like, I feel a little Zeusy today, you know. They called Paul Hermes, like, man, I'm just the messenger god. You know, and they began to what? Worship them. But Paul and Barnabas held them at bay, said, quit doing that, you ding-dongs. We're not gods, we're men. Okay, I know you got some crazy rituals here. We've come to proclaim the gospel. There's one true God. Following that, what happened? Paul had been stoned nearly to death by Jewish, jealous Jews from Antioch and Iconium. These are the things that took place in that city, these cities on the first journey. Some crazy stuff going on. And here we find them back in these places. And then at Lystra, Paul and Silas were joined by a disciple named Tiny Tim. No, Timothy. You think about the providence of God here. Okay, we saw the providence of God in the eruption, the explosion, bringing in the right guy for the job. Think about the providence of God in this particular instance. The original missionary team during the first journey, right before it and partially through it, was who? Paul Barnabas and John Mark, three men with special roles. Paul was the primary preacher, Barnabas was the supportive prophet teacher, and John Mark was their highly valued assistant. Barnabas left, right? But God replaced him with Silas. John Mark left, but God replaced him with Timothy. Providence, man. You see, the team broke up, it disintegrated. There's a new team. A new team. I love it. The text shows how God restored the three-person missionary team. Earlier it had been Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark, and now it will be Paul, Silas, and Timothy. How cool is this? Another cool thing to note is that Timothy was added to their team right before the second missionary journey began. This means that Timothy was there to support them from the very onset. This was a tremendous blessing. Having supportive co-laborers is essential to the ministry of preachers and teachers, to the ministry of evangelists. Without them, preachers and teachers are left to deal with every facet of ministry which can distract them from preaching and teaching. It can if I spent all my time caring for widows and orphans, which is part of my duty, if I did that, how would I study and how would I come and preach? I wouldn't. 
I'd be wrapped up doing all of those things. Earlier in Acts, we saw how the apostles appointed deacons to care for widows so they could focus on what? Preaching and prayer. Without those deacons, the apostles would have been forced to do it all. And the preaching and prayer would have gone down and the church would have suffered. In our text, Timothy was brought in at the perfect time for the perfect role. He was brought in right at the beginning of the second journey. And his service would prove to be invaluable a little later on. This really illustrates, it really does illustrate how attentive and good God is in terms of providing for us and caring for us. He knows our true needs. He knows what is lacking. And he provides. Paul and Silas were going to need some help. And then in walks Timothy. It's great. RHC, this church was uh, in need of a larger meeting space, if you will, and in walks Jim Applegate. Hi, Jim Applegate. I got a deal you can't refuse. Show him what he's got, Tommy. Boom, look behind curtain six. Cheap rent. Killer building. It's God. You know, we're sitting around praying, oh, what are we going to do? The space is terrible. Jim, Jim shows up. You think Jim showed up on his own merit, strength, and power and ability? No, he was led by the Lord, providence. When I left Big Valley years ago, I, I needed a job which paid a certain amount of dollars. Well, I really didn't land one job that did it, but I'll tell you what, my DJ business began to take off. God gave me a part-time job doing the old electronics thing. Our needs were met. God knew what we needed and brought in those things right at the perfect Time. RHC needed elders. I can't run this place by myself. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine. I get one person that comes to me, one of you beloved people that come to me and, and, and you need me to pray with you in these things. And, and I love to do it, believe me, it's part of my role, but it's challenging to do that with so many, you know? It's tough. I got to study, I got to write, I got I to preach. There's things I got to do. I got to be praying. I got I to gotta lead with these other men and stuff like that. I mean, there's a lot of things I got to do. We needed elders, and God provided Paul, Colby, Mike, Bruce, and that guy right there, Aaron Philbrin. God had it all set in eternity past. Who would come and who would serve in what role? And it's just amazing. Here I am crying out for the needs and God provides them. He had it all set up. God is attentive to the needs of his children. And like a good father, he provides for them according to his will. Period. He provides for my immediate family, my distant family, my church family, and so on. God even causes the rain based on his providence to fall upon the unrighteous, doesn't he? He cares for people. He cares and provides, and this is amazing for those who despise him. Wow. Now, Timothy had been saved under Paul's preaching during the first journey, and he would later become Paul's right-hand man and true spiritual child. It's an interesting thing. It was almost as if Paul adopted Timothy as a type of spiritual son. In 1 Timothy 1, 2, Paul lovingly referred to him as his true child in the faith. The text says Timothy was the son of a Jewish woman who believed in the Lord 
according to 2 Tim 1.5, her name was Eunice. Timothy also had a believing grandmother named Lois. We might say that Timothy had a pretty good Christian heritage, didn't he? He was only a few years old, but what an advantage. It is also believed that Timothy was a young man here in the text, either in his late teens or early 20s. And then it makes that interesting statement about his daddy being Greek. Was, however, in the text, because it says daddy was a Greek, implies that his father had already passed away. Past tense. His dad was dead. His dad had died. But nonetheless, Timothy was then both, because of the Jewish mother and the Greek daddy, he was of both Jewish and Greek background. Now this is where it gets amazing. This particular background of being like half Jewish and half Greek, okay, gave him, here's where it's so advantageous to the mission, it gave him access to both cultures, which was an important qualification for missionary service back in those days. God's providence again. This isn't just a good helper. This is the perfect guy who has a background that he can minister to both. You think of Paul. Paul had this sort of background. He was Jewish, and yet he was a Roman citizen. This enabled him to minister to both cultures very effectively. And Timothy was like Paul in this to some degree. He had a background in both cultures, which would make him very effective in ministering to Greeks and to Jews. And this, too, as I've already alluded to, shows that God's providence and provision is perfectly matched for the need. You need someone to take the place of Barnabas. I've got a guy who should be going with you anyways from Jerusalem so he can back up the letter. And you need a helper because John Mark was a terrific help. Why else did Paul get so blown out when he left? I think he was a tremendous help. And to lose that help was very hard on them. Those guys had to broaden out their ministry and do things probably they shouldn't have had to spend a whole bunch of time doing because they're out there trying to get the gospel out there. To bring in Timothy was an amazing act of God's provision and providence. Half Jewish, half Greek, perfect guy for the job. Timothy was literally perfect, the perfect match for Paul and Silas's work. Now look at verse 2. I got to really hustle. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. We're talking of Timothy here. Timothy had an excellent, excellent reputation as a fellow Christian amongst the brothers in his hometown and Iconium. You might say that when Timothy stepped forward, Paul might have had him checked out. Who is this young man? Who is this whippersnapper? He says he loves, the, you know, loves Jesus and he's about the gospel and he wants to go on this missions trip or whatever. I think that Paul had him checked out. Who is this kid? How does he conduct his life? Does his lifestyle match his testimony? And guess what? When he started asking questions, the brothers from those two cities had nothing but cool things to say about Timothy. Look at verse 3. Man, this guy's not only half Greek, half Jewish, perfect in that sense for the mission, but he's got the right character. He's got the right reputation. He's not going to go into synagogues and go, that guy's a meatball. What are you doing traveling with him? They're going to say, that's a godly young man. And because of these things, it says in verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because the Jews, because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Here comes that weird term again. Timothy had the right qualifications and reputation to join the ministry team of Paul and Silas. 
Paul became convinced of this and then sought to add him to the team. But before commissioning Timothy, before adding him to the team, he had to deal with one discrepancy, and that was that Timothy was uncircumcised. Timothy was half Jewish and half Greek, and because of his Greekness, he had never been circumcised. This was typical in Greek culture, even if there was a little bit of that Jewish blend in there. He wasn't circumcised. Now, you must know this. This circumcision, Paul seeking to do this, had nothing to do with salvation. You read the commentaries. Look! He backpedaled. You know, he, he went backwards. He capitulated. He returned to the old way of thinking. He had Timothy circumcised because it is necessary for salvation. This is just dumb. If you don't understand the context, that's what you come up with. Do you not understand what's playing out in the narrative? The significance of these things. People just read this at face value, take it literally. Look, Paul capitulated and went backwards, and we do have to get circumcised to be saved. That's just a ridiculous way to look at it. The only way to arrive at that conclusion is via ignorance of the context. Let me ask you a couple questions. We're getting close to wrapping up. What was the first thing the Apostle Paul did when he entered a new town, when he was out evangelizing? He went right in. First thing he did, he went right into the Jewish synagogues, didn't he? First place he went to, right? He went right into those Jewish synagogues and he preached the gospel. Let me ask you this. Was it lawful? Was it lawful? Was it okay for an uncircumcised Gentile to enter a Jewish synagogue? No. Absolutely not. Hold on. I don't know how they would even know whether he was circumcised or not. All right, come over here real quick. You can't go in. You can't go in, bro. You got to get that taken care of. Somehow they could tell. Maybe he looked Greek. I don't know. I don't know if Greeks, you know, Jews walk like this. Greeks, you know, I... That was stupid. I mean, how... how... You, you, if you were Jewish, if you were, if you were a, a Greek, you, you, you couldn't go in if you were uncircumcised. It was not lawful for you. What were Paul and Silas to do while traveling with an uncircumcised assistant? Leave them outside every time they went into a synagogue. Hey, Tim, just wait here and be ready to run just in case. I'd like to go inside. You got to sit down right there on the bench. Go ride that camel for a while. We'll be out. Come on, man. Look, in order to be effective in their ministry, in spreading the gospel to Jewish people, Timothy had to be circumcised, without a doubt. If they had taken him along just as he was, before he was circumcised, they would have lost every and all opportunities to share the gospel with Jews, period. And at that point, Paul would have been disobedient to his calling, which was to bring the gospel to who first? To the Jew first, right? And this was all magnified. This was magnified here in the text. Timothy was a well-known, upstanding young man who had a Greek daddy. Somehow people knew he wasn't circumcised because of that. And the Jews in the region, in that old region, they, they knew that he, he had a Greek heritage. They knew that he had a Greek daddy. And they knew somehow that he was uncircumcised. Their ministry would have been done if they'd have taken him un, as an uncircumcised person. They'd have had to just hide him everywhere they went. Don't look at him. 
Paul realized this. He knew he had discernment. He knew that he was called to reach the Jews first. He knew that he had to go. And if he took this kind of half-Jewish guy that wasn't circumcised, they'd be in big trouble. So what did he do? He sought to eliminate any and all obstacles. Remember, he's the kind of person that would stop at nothing to get the gospel out there. He wouldn't let Alexander the coppersmith or a, a division between him and Barnabas stop the ministry of the gospel. He certainly wasn't going to allow the fact that a young man who wanted to go, who was a godly young man who wasn't circumcised, he wasn't going to let that stop him. And he wanted Timothy to go really bad. Timothy was an excellent guy, excellent candidate. And Timothy wanted to go really bad. Paul simply knew this and made the choice to remove the obstacles. And take notice of this in the text. We don't see anything about Timothy protesting, do we? Are you nuts? I'm not doing that. I wanted to go, but I don't know now. Nothing. I think we got to stop right there. Even though I feel like I'm warmed up right now. It took me this long to get warmed up. I think we could end on, on, on that note right there of removing any and all obstacles from us as Christians fulfilling our duty to Christ, which is the great commission to make disciples in all nations, to baptize these disciples in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to teach them all that Christ commanded. That's what we're called to do. And I suppose the ending question, thing that we could entertain and, and ponder before we take the communion elements is what is it in my life that is obstructing this? It could be as simple as you not giving your time, talent, and treasure to the cause of Christ. You want to make it practical? Let's go there. If you're not serving, you're hindering. If you're not giving, you're hindering. Those are obstructions. And I praise the Lord because this is a pretty faithful church. This is a generous church. And, and I don't want to rebuke you. It's not about that or anything. But I'm just telling you, if that's who you are, there, there's people in here that have made that commitment to Christ for whatever reason. What's the difference between circumcision and that? Circumcision is one thing. But when, when you think of not giving of your time, talent, and treasure, and yet when we ponder... What was given for you? Are you nuts? Do you not understand what's been done for you? That it's because of that that we could give anything, and it's because of what took place there that we should give everything that we have. We should offer up everything as a sacrifice to the Lord for the cause of Christ. Amen? I don't know what it is in your life that is hindering you from being this man or woman of God who's on mission. Are there things in your life that obstruct? And are there things, by the very example of Scripture we see between Paul and Timothy, are there things that you realize there is stuff in my life that isn't of the Lord, it isn't in obedience to his word, to the truth, and I need to deal with those things so I can align myself with the will of God, so I can align myself with the mission of God. Is that who you are today? Guess what? God's grace for you. And he forgives and he restores 
And so maybe that's what we would ponder. It might not be time, talent, and treasure. It could be something else. You could be wrapped up in some sexually immoral thing. You could be wrapped up in anger. You could be wrapped up in some things that just, just that aren't becoming of the Lord, and they hinder the mission. I don't know your life well enough. I know the elders pretty good. I can call them on stuff. Boy, they don't hesitate to call me on stuff. I'll tell you that. Amen, though, right? Give me a good boot in the rear end once in a while. My wife does it, too, every day. She wears out her boots on my rear end. Maybe you just need to spend some time with the Lord and say, God, what is it in my life that is hindering the mission of Christ, which I will say so clearly to you and with as much force as I can is the most important thing that, in your life, the mission of Christ. You were redeemed for the purpose of serving him in this mission. There is a purpose. Does God love you? Absolutely. But there is a purpose behind it too. And that is to serve him faithfully and to offer up your life as a sacrifice and to give of your time, talent, and treasure to love one another. These things, to put to death the flesh, these are the requirements. This is what it means to carry the cross. I have to do the same thing. I'm saying these things to you, but let me tell you something right now. Man, I've been thinking about this stuff all week. I feel like one missile after another. God's doing a work in my life. He's doing a work in your life. Let's continue to allow him to do that. What is obstructing you from engaging the mission? Maybe even in a deeper way. Father, we offer up this time of contemplation, of transparency, of confession. Lord, reveal to us our shortcomings, our inadequacies, the things that hinder the mission of you, the living God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Make your mission, the mission of the church, our incredible, just most important and passionate desire, Lord, becoming more and more convinced that as we yield to you and submit to you, you do increase that passion and desire. So I suppose we have some sort of role to play in it, and that is yielding to you. And oh, what joy we receive when we obey and step out in faith and serve and give and love others and pour out our time in these things for that which really matters, that which bears eternal Fruit. Some of us are wrapped up in the temporal life and pouring ourselves into our work and all these things and, and emptying ourselves into these things. And every one of these things is going to be consumed. They don't last. The only thing that lasts is the truth. The only thing that lasts is the kingdom of God. And may we make a, a choice right in this very moment to offer up ourselves to that mission, to the kingdom. May we begin to really live as kingdom people who joyfully sacrifice anything and all things for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ, the name above all names. May the catalyst for these things be the remembrance of what these elements represent. We, could, we can't do anything apart from you. And it is your spilt blood, your broken body, what those things represent, the gospel of Jesus Christ 
that actually creates within us a desire to do this and empowers us to do it. May we remember what those elements represent. Our freedom, free to be loved by you, to love you back, and to offer ourselves to you and for your cause, which is the greatest thing in the known universe, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the mission of the church. May we offer ourselves up and remember what these elements represent. We know that by taking the elements that we belong to a new race, aliens and strangers in this world, kingdom people, covenant people, who are so dearly loved by you, who are protected by you, who are graced by you, who receive endless mercy from you, and who receive the Holy Spirit who fills us and ignites passion and love for you and love for the cause of Christ and love for our brothers and love for the lost. That's what these elements represent, Jesus. May we take them in all joy. May we confess beforehand. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Help yourselves.